Today we're going to talk about the Tzunav uh, Magid. The Tzunav Magid was born to his father, Reb Nachum, the Merinaim, who we've spoken about in the past, in uh, the year Tafkuf Lamid, which uh, calculates out to 1770. And um, <coughs> the Chernobyl uh, Magid, the, the the term Magid, which uh, by which he came to be known, referred to uh, in those times someone who's um, uh, who would frequently travel through the countryside, appearing in different communities. Um, uh, lecturing and exhorting the uh, people of these different communities, many of which in those days um, did not have particularly inspired leadership. So they would come and they would uh, they would um, try to motiv- motivate them to uh, aspire to bigger and better things. Anyway, these uh, these um, rabbinic leaders who um, were known to, um, to to travel a great deal and to um, to speak to these different communities were called Magidim. And amongst Hasidim there were a variety of Magidim, the, uh, the first and the most prominent that we have already spoken about was the Magid of Mizrich. The um, uh, Chernobyl Magid's father was uh, was really also a Magid in the tradition of Magidim, although he's not known um, by the term Magid, he's rather known by the name of his uh, Hasidic work that we've uh, had reference to, the Meirenayim. But his son, Ramotala Chernobyl, as he was known, uh, was known as the Chernobyl Magid. The Chernobyl Magid's birth has a, um, a very interesting type of, of story associated with it. The uh, the great Magid of Mizrich, the successor to the Baal Shem HaKodesh, was, uh, was really the Rabbi Muvok, he was really the, uh, the, the major Hasidic um, mentor of Reb Nochum Chernobyl, of Reb Motala's father. Although, as uh, as you may remember, uh, the Meirenaim also was privileged uh, a number of times to um, to visit the Baal Shem HaKodesh, and he refers to him as uh, Meiri, my teacher. But his, uh, for, for the most part, the um, the greater exposure to the Hasidus that the Meirenaim had was from the Mizrach Magid. The Mizrach Magid many times would. Ref, would, would tell his Talmidim that there was a great neshama, a uh, particularly lustrous soul from the Elam from one of the celestial spheres that uh, he in, had every intention of uh, giving to one of his Talmidim to one of his disciples 
But as yet, he didn't know to whom he was going to consign that particular soul. Amongst the disciples of the great Magid was Reb Arm Karliner. Karlin was a city in uh, Russia, Poland, I give up. Um, what? It was in Lita. Okay. And um, and the Chabang was one of the disciples of the, the great Magid. Uh, this Rabban uh, Kaliner is the uh, the uh, patriarch of the father of the dynasty that we today refer to as Stalin. Stalin Kalin, there's a Stalin Rebbe, and uh, he was formerly in, in Brooklyn, now he's in Yatsisho. Um, uh, so. The um, this line traces itself back to Rabban, who was a disciple of the great Magid. Rabban was one of these was also one of the individuals who um, traveled a great deal to the uh, communities of uh, Russia, Lithuania, and whose uh, efforts in outreach, uh, addressing the um, the people. Uh, the, the Jews of his time who had kind of uh, strayed or who had wandered away um, it was reputed that Reb was Marzo Betshuva something in excess of 70,000 Nefoshes that was the, the, the power of this Reb he was called and is, and is still known amongst Chassidim as Reb Agen HaGodo the great Reb Reb um, died in his 33rd year of life I believe he was in his 30s in any event and um, and left a um, a very young widow with a yesema with a um, an infant uh, an orphan whose name was Chayasar Shortly after Rabban Kalina's death, the great Magid of Mizrich summoned his disciple Reb Nachum, the Meir Naim, and said to him, Reb Nachum, I want you to go to Karlin, and I want you to appear at, uh, I want you to, to go to the uh, to the kever of Rabban, and uh, I want you to tell him that. Um, this great neshama that I promised one of my disciples will become his in the following way. I'm going to give you, Reb Nachum, this soul. And the child that will be born will be a son. And this son will marry Reb Aaron's daughter. So Reb Nachum went to Karlin and he uh, visited the kever of Reb He made this this, uh, this speech that uh, that Reb Nachum that uh, the Magid, the Magid, had instructed him to do. And then he came back to his Rebbe, who said to him, "Now you can, now you should go home." He said, "Go home, and your wife will conceive, and you will bear a son, and uh, this son is destined to become." the Baron's son-in-law. 
So it was that year that Rimotala was born, this Rimotala Chernobyl was born, and eventually he became the the husband of Chaya Sarah, the daughter of the great Rabban of Kalim. It's also recounted that when they wrote the Tnoim, the engagement, the betrothal contract between the children, between Chayasura and Ramatala, that the engagement contract was written in the in, by the great Magid of Mizrich. And he instructed them that when they wrote in, in the in the Tnoim, there's a there's one place where it's there's a space that you're supposed to fill in. I mean, if, at least in ours. I mean, in those days, they probably wrote them from scratch all the time. But there's a place there that you're supposed to write. Um, so-and-so uh, who, um, who uh, stands for... Uh, who's essentially who's assuming responsibility for his son, so-and-so, and so-and-so who's stands and, and assumes responsibility for his daughter and then it, it talks about the fact that the that the parents these two these two people who are mentioned uh, will see to it that the children are well prepared to get married at a given date so the magid the great magid instructed that when it comes to the name of the kala that they should put in rav reb Usually you don't put in the name of a deceased as someone who's standing in the in, in, in the in the place of or who assumes responsibility for the the, the kala. But the Magid instructed that they should put in, in that place they should say the Rav Rabban who stands uh, for the uh, for his daughter, the Kala Chayasar. After having concluded the writing of the Tanoim, the great Magid instructed or gave this, this, the honor of reading the Tanoim to the Mendel of Atevsky, who was considered amongst, if not the greatest, of the Magid's disciples. So the Mendela began to read the Tanoim, and he came to the place in the Tanoim where it says HaRav Reb Arn HaEmed Mitzad Bitei HaKalach HaYesor He said, Reb Arn who's standing for the side of the Kala and, the, and when he said those words he passed out Anyway, they ran up to him and they began to try they, 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 they put cold water over his forehead and they tried to revive him they could not revive him until finally the great Magid himself walked over and took him by the shoulders and said to him Mendala, Mendala he said why were you so shocked had you never seen Rabban before you knew him in his lifetime so Mendala said Rebbe I saw Reb standing before me in heavenly clothes, which I have a Kabbalah, that is, I, from the sources that I learned, that one at most two people in a generation merit 
such heavenly clothing. He said their their brilliance overwhelmed me, he said, and I I was taken aback that though I knew Reb Agnon in his lifetime, I didn't realize who he was. So this was the, um, the father-in-law of um, of Reb Matala, and it was under these conditions that the um, that the Tanoim took place. Uh, this uh, this story is recounted in uh, this particular anecdote is recounted in many different places and well known in the uh, the family tradition. This uh, uh, in places where it is it is reprinted, it's usually reprinted in the name of the Balatanya, first uh, of the Lubavitcher Rabbeim. Uh, this uh, first marriage brought Rebmatala three sons and a daughter. They were Rebagn Chernobyl, who who succeeded his his father in Chernobyl. The second son was Rebmatala Karaschavar, and the third was our grandfather's uh, our great grandfather's grandfather. Yankee was sold from Cherkass. Um His first wife, Chayasara, passed away as a young woman, and he remarried again the, the daughter of Rabdovid Lakis, who was a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. Well, despite the fact that the disciples of the Baal Shem Tov were long gone, this Rabdovid Lakis lived well over a century and it was uh, Reb David Lekas's daughter that became uh, Reb Matala's Rebetzin in his second marriage and it was from that second marriage that Reb Nochem Mekarva was born the Triska Magid Reb Avram Reb David Altolner Reb Yitzchak Skverer and Reb Yechenen from Rachmas Trivka uh, there were eight sons, and there were also another, I believe, another two daughters from the second marriage. Um, if uh, one goes through the names, it will be noted that he gave names which corresponded to all of the Avais or all of the um, um, my mind is mush. No, what are we looking for? Uh, and the sick and the the spizen. Give me for all the spizen. I know something's wrong. Got to stop whatever drugs I'm on. Um, the Triska uh, Magid's name was Avram. The Skverer's name was Yitzchak. The Chikasa's name was Yankov. The Karashov's name was Moshe. Uh, the Chernobyl's name was Rabban, whose name was Rabban, and the Talmud's name was Reb David. Uh, in addition, he had um, Reb Nochem from Mekarov and Reb Yechenenche from Rachmastrivka. What? He didn't have a Yosef, but I think he had a Psachashm. Um, I forgot what Psachashm was. There was something. The um, 
just as, a, as an aside, between myself and Reb Motola, Reb Motola, the Chernobyl Magid was was Nifter in Tuf Kuf Tzadik Ches, which is uh, roughly a hundred and sixty years ago, eighteen thirty-eight. Uh, there are two people. My father, of blessed memory, knew someone who was a disciple of My father, blessed memory, told me the following story, that in the early 1930s, he traveled to Montreal. Before he traveled to Montreal, he went through New York. And uh, in, in, in uh, the Bronx at the time, there was a um, an uncle of my father's, the Rebbe of Manastrisch. So they were close, and he uh, stopped in New York, and he went to visit his his uncle. So his uncle said to him, you're going to Montreal. I would like to uh, remind you that over there you will meet, I don't remember the name that my father told me, my father told me the name, so-and-so, who you may remember from Europe. My father was astounded because he did remember this particular person from Europe, and by my father's calculation, this person would now be a very old man deep into his 80s. So my father looked forward somewhat eagerly to meet this this fellow whom he remembered from many years back in Europe. When he arrived, when my father arrived in Montreal, there at, at the train station, there was a, uh, there was a large uh, crowd of people waiting for him to greet him. But this elderly man was not amongst them. The following day, however, he appeared with a kvittle. He came with... Uh, a kvittle to uh, give to my father. My father opened up the kvittle, and in the kvittle it said that he asks that the Rebbe should give a bracha for his father. That his father was uh, was ill. So here my father was was pretty much astounded that this man was alive, and now. So he, my father at first thought that there was some mistake, maybe he had miswritten something. He said to him, um, is this possible? You're asking me for a, a bracha, a refuah, lema for your father? So he said, yes. So my father said to him, well, by my calculation, you're deep into your 80s. How old is your father? So he said, well, it's a little bit of a difference of opinion between ourselves and him. By our calculations, he's 116. By his calculations, he's only 113. So he took a discount. So my father, blessed memory, said that he asked him, would he take him to visit? It was for the first time in his life that he had fallen ill to the point where he had to be taken to the hospital. He had never before in his entire life been in a hospital. That's probably why he lived so long. (laughs) So, So my father described to me his visit to the hospital. And he went in. And this fellow was as sharp and as clear as a bell. And he said to my father, uh, what's your name? My father told him his name. And he said to him, and whose son or whose grandson are you? And my father gave him the uh, yichas. And he said, oh, I know. And he proceeded to rattle off all the generations, all the way back to the Chernobyl Magit Ramatala. And he said, I want you to know that I was a chassid of the Chernobyl Magid. He says, I went to him, he says, just short of my 20th birthday. 
He says, I saw him. So here was, here was my, fa- my father knew someone who actually was a chassid of, the, of this Chernobyl and Magid. He passed away a short, a short time later. And um, was the oldest individual uh, known at the time in Canada. The prime minister attended his funeral. It was a, was a big deal. My father told me that, of course, he was escorted to the hospital by... The, the son, this fellow who was, you know, this octogenarian. So, in the course of the discussion between my father and this and the and the old man, he pointed to his son, and said to my father, "Did my bicycle come to see you yet?" <laughs> so my my father said, "Take a look. He's you know he's, he's like like about eighty six years old, and he's a bicycle because his father's alive. He's a bicycle." Um, the great Magid of uh, Chernobyl, the Matala, was um, was a very original kind of person, in the sense that he was amongst the first to create somewhat of a departure in this, the tradition and the manner in which the Hasidic greats lived. Uh, up until that point, it was most common that uh, the Hasidic leaders uh, lived in very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, very um, um, ascetic, is that the word? Ascetic, very um, very Spartan. Uh, there was, uh, there were absolutely none of the the uh, appurtenances of wealth in in their surroundings. They, the, quite the contrary, there generally was a, a very pronounced um, sense of poverty. Because despite the fact that that great riches passed through their hands, they kept nothing. They would distribute everything immediately to charity. And while the great Magid's um, charity was legendary, nonetheless, the Chernobyl Magid did live in surroundings which at the time were considered um, um, a, a home that would uh, speak to some affluence. And his father, when he heard about this, uh, I couldn't uh, couldn't quite believe it, but he he went to see for himself how his son lived, and he saw that his son lived in a comfortable home, and that uh, when he walked into the house, that the house was well furnished. So he said to his son, "Let me see all of the things that you own." And his and, and Ramatullah was obliged to to take out the silver and all of the things that that. He owned them. And Rabnachim said to him, his father said to him, I don't understand. What purpose is there in any of this? To which the Chernobyl Magid responded, he said, Father, the Talmud tells us that amongst the wealthiest, the most princely of, uh, of lifestyles was the lifestyle of the uh, redactor of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. 
It's called Rabbeinu HaKodesh, the Gemara. Yudha Nasi, um, his, his wealth was rivaled only by that of the Roman Caesar, Antoninus. In any event, at, uh, at the time of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi's death, the Gemara uh, relates that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi lifted up his two hands with his fingers spread heavenward and said, Master of the world, you will bear witness that I have not derived pleasure from this world even so much as a little finger's worth. So the Chernobyl Magid said to his father, if he wasn't deriving any pleasure from it, then why did he need it? Why did he have it? So Reb Nachum was silent and the Chernobyl Magid concluded, he said, it's obvious that there is a derech avoida, that there is a, a path of service, which is a hidden path but which requires these kinds of surroundings. He says, I have chosen that path. At which point, Reb Nochem walked up and uh, was heard congratulating himself that he was, that he merited to have a son of such, of such sanctity. Despite the fact that he lived in such comfortable surroundings, he uh, was not a person who was given to uh, personal pleasure. He uh, he ate very little. On one occasion he visited the Aptarov, the Ayyavi soil, and the Aptarov, although he fasted during the course of the week, but on Shabbos, ate amounts of food, volumes of food, that were absolutely indescribable. They, they would speak of it in, in terms that, that went beyond uh, the capacity of, of uh, any conventional mortal. Nonetheless, during this visit, when the, the Chernobyl Magid was there, the Aptorov ate very little. The Magid, who knew about the practice of the Aptorov, said to him, my friend... I know that this is not your practice. Why is it that today you are eating so little? So he said to him, let me explain something to you. He says, Shabbos is a very great day, a very holy day. He says, but Shabbos is also a very hospitable day. For example, he says, Rosh Chodesh comes, and, and Shabbos gives Rosh Chodesh one of its tefillahs. Because on, on Shabbos, when it coincides with Rosh Chodesh, the Musaf is not the conventional Shabbos Musaf, it's the Musaf of Rosh Chodesh. He says when Yontif comes, then the Shabbos is even more hospitable. And the Shabbos gives away all of the davening. Because then all of the Shemineseras are Yontif Shemineseras. They're not any of the conventional Shabbos Shemineseras. He says, comes Yom Kippur, Shabbos gives away even its meals. He says the Shabbos is very hospitable, so it gives away even all of the Sudas of Shabbos. 
So he said, you, my friend, he said, are of the, the level of sanctity of, of Yom Kippur. So he says, so, he says, I'm, I'm forced, I'm obliged to give away my meals. There's a little bit of a postscript to that story in which they say that one of the Chernobyl of Eniklach, one of the descendants of the Chernobyl Magid, once came to a community where there was a a baldash and there was a speaker who was slated to speak and it was well known that he was a very severe, harsh speaker who uh, who would rebuke his audiences and, uh, and reduce them to tears. So... Um, at the appointed and at that same that same Shabbos, the um, this Chernobyl Reinikel was there, and um, virtually the entire city went to spend their uh, their time in the presence of the Rebbe and not in the uh, audience listening to the Baldash. So when the uh, the speaker saw that there was a very slim crowd he went over to the uh, where the Rebbe was holding forth with the entire crowd and said to the Rebbe Kavod HaTorah you know that's uh, the honor for the Torah the Rebbe should instruct everybody here to come to listen to my drosha so this the, the Rebbe repeated this this story and he said, it's true that the Shabbos is very hospitable. It's hospitable to Rosh Chodesh, hospitable to Yontif, hospitable to Yom Kippur. He says, but there's one Yontif that Shabbos is not hospitable to, and that's Tishabov. He says, Tishabov, he says, is a very grim and, and, and very sorrowful day. He says, when it comes on Shabbos, Shabbos says, go back and come back another day. <laughs> There are a host of, of all kinds of accounts which appear um, uh, probably for the first time in, uh, in, in, in greatest abundance in the life of Leib Sorez, who was one of the, the luminaries that we probably won't get to. Um, and that is the issue of the Lamed Vov Tzadikim. There are in the uh, in, in our sacred writings there are references to the fact that the world cannot exist other than with the presence of thirty six uh, saintly individuals whose righteousness is of such proportions that the world the world survives the uh, creation. Is uh, is dependent upon these thirty six righteous, and there are thirty six righteous in every generation. Uh, but it, it it appears to be uh, virtually one of the prerequisites that their identity never be betrayed. Um, the Rebbe um, was known to be one of those Hasidic masters who uh, had assumed responsibility for seeing to it that these 36 righteous would be sustained, that they would be, that they would have uh, panos, at least there would be someone who cared about them. Uh, and that uh, he handed over this responsibility to the Chernobyl Magid. And so there are a whole host of, of very fascinating accounts of the many uh, different instances in which 
the uh, the great Magid of Chernobyl and Motala would um, uh, would find ways of um, meeting these people and seeing to it that they were accounted for. Um, there is uh, also a very interesting account which um, I believe I heard from the first time from Rabinzin who uh, related that story to me in the name of the Baba Varov. That the Baba Varov uh, once told of a visit which the Chernobyl Magid's son, the Triska Magid, paid to Rabbi Oren Leib. Rabbi Oren Leib was the son of the Mayor Vishamish, one of the Hasidic greats. In any event, here was the son of the Matal of Chernobyl visiting Reb Arnleib. In the morning, the two of them sat down to breakfast, and the Trisker Magid wasn't eating. So Reb Arnleib turned to him and said to him, Why is the Rebbe not eating? So the Magid said to him, I, I have no appetite. So he said to him, why does the Rebbe have no appetite? So he said, because I didn't sleep well. So he said, and why did the Rebbe not sleep well? So he said, I was tortured. So he was surprised. He said, tortured by what? He said, well, let me tell you. He said, when I was a little boy, he said, my father, the Matala Chernobyl, uh, would... Uh, would have times when he would receive no guests. No, there's no one could get in. He says, on one occasion, he says, a carriage drove up, and out of the carriage alighted a, an elderly man. And he inquired after my father, and I informed him that my father could not be seen, and he insisted that I go tell, his, tell my father that he, was, that he had come to visit, and I should interrupt him. He said he was very insistent, so I went in, and my father immediately came out and ushered him in, and they secluded themselves for hours and hours. When he finally left, my father said to me, did you give, did you give him Shalom Aleichem? So I, I shook my head no, and he said, well, quickly. So I ran up and I gave him my hand and greeted him. He says he then walked out to his carriage, and had difficulty, because he was an old man, difficulty stepping up to the carriage. So he said, my father noticed this, and said to me, quickly run over there, and bend down near the carriage, and let him step on you so that he can get up to the carriage. So he said, my father's word was law. So he says, I ran over, I bent down, and the old man stepped on me, and got into the carriage. He says, before the carriage began to move, he said, the old man gave a krechts. A krechts is a sigh, a sob. It's a, it's, it's a, a, a it's a krechts. So he says, he gave a krechts. I had never before in my life ever heard a, um, an exclamation, an expression like that krechts, and never again did I ever hear such a krechts. So he said, I went back to my father, and I inquired of him 
Father, who was that man? So my father said to me, my son, that was Mashiach. So he said, and his krechts was a krechts about the tsaris, all of the suffering and the misery of the Jewish people. So the Triska Magid concluded, concluded this story to to the Barnleib, and he said to him, believe me, my friend, he said, it's been tens of years since then. I was a little boy then. He said, but that krechts tortures me to this day. And he says, and many, many times it robs me of my ability, ability to sleep. So the, the uh, one can appreciate the fact that uh, not only was the uh, Chernobyl Magid a... Um, the um, sustainer and uh, the one who knew the ident- identity of the, the 36 righteous, but uh, he was also the counsel of of such um, such figures in the destiny of the Jewish people as Mashiach Tzidkenu. He was, a, 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 as I had caused to mention earlier, he was a person of, of, of enormous... Um, charity and yet uh, abruptly one day he announced that he was no longer entertaining anyone who was going to be coming to him for a charitable gift and so from that point forward all the poor who had heard about his legendary giving were turned away no exceptions and this went on for a period of time until one day the Rebbe was in middle of Davani and he looked out the window, and there was a impoverished widow who was gathering twigs in the court, the courtyard of the Beis Hamedrash. And the Magi tapped on the window to wave her away. When um, he finished davening, he instructed his gaboim, his attendants, that from this point forward they could once again announce that he was going back to his former distribution of charity. And when people inquired about um, about the, this interruption and what it was that that caused this this suspension and now the the resumption once again, the um, the Maggid explained that um, he had begun to notice that in his giving of charity that he was giving out of a sense of of uh, sympathy and compassion for the people who were coming to him. And that the real point of his giving was to assuage his own hurt. He couldn't bear the hurt of the people who came to him in poverty. And to, to mitigate against that hurt, he would give whatever sums, uh, whatever handsome sums that he would distribute. He said that uh, when he noticed that that was the, the motivating force, he knew that he had to stop. 
giving charity is not supposed to be self-serving, it's supposed to be a mitzvah, and he wanted to give because the Almighty commands that we give. It should be something which comes in response to the divine word, not in response to his personal discomfort and distress. And so he stopped giving, and he knew that he could start giving again when he found found it within himself to uh, send away this poor widow from gathering twigs in the in the uh, courtyard of the Besaknesa. So that that's the point at which he realized that he was now once again able to resume his giving out of a sense of mitzvah. Well, what did he do with the mitzvah giving tzedakah during that period? He made up for it later on. Um, the um, the Magid's sanctity was of uh, of such a level that um, uh, perhaps uh, uh, once again an anecdote can can best give us some sense of of what this was all about the uh, the Magid was a an uncle to I believe a great uncle to the Rebbe of Rizhin and the Rebbe the, the, the Rizhiner gave a name to one of his children the Syatanar uh, he named him Mordechai, he named him Mordechai Shraga so when people inquired of him as to the origin of the name, why he gave the name Mordechai Shraga, so he says, well Mordechai is after my uncle the Matal of Chernobyl so they said to him with some surprise, your uncle is alive so he said my uncle is many years already in heaven so despite the fact that he was alive, the uh, the Rizhina who who knew his whereabouts better than they knew that the that uh, that the Chernobyl Magid uh, may have been walking around here on Earth, but was uh, uh, really uh, was uh, in a in a completely different world. Uh, I, as I uh, told you about earlier, the uh, the great Magid of Chernobyl had eight sons. Now, all of those sons were, each of them were people of, of absolutely um, towering greatness. They were people of, um, of such excellence that, uh, that, that each one of them became in their own right a, a legend unto themselves. Um, one of our forebearers on another side of our family, my father's mother's side. My, my uh, grandmother was a an Aptarenikel. And um, she was a, a great-granddaughter of, uh, of the Aptar and um, came from the Aptar's son, Yitzchak Meir, who was Raven Zinkif. The story is told that Rabbi Shemayr of, of Zinkiv came to a community 
where he had been invited to spend Shabbos, and preparations and arrangements had been made many months prior to his visit. He, uh, Shemaiah was, a, was a greatly venerated in his time and uh, had followers in this community. So they prepared in a very festive fashion for the visit of the Rebbe. When the Rebbe finally arrived, he arrived in the middle of the week, and on Thursday night, his host came in to tell him, Rebbe, we have a problem. So when he inquired about the problem, they said to him, his host said to him, uh, so-and-so came into town. He's very much unexpected, at, at, uh, but... Um, apparently he can't journey any further before Shabbos, so he's going to be in this community, for, and it was one of the Chernobyl Magid's sons, I don't know which one, but it was one of the Magid's, one of the eight sons of the Magid, was there for Shabbos. So the Zhinkiva said, if that's the case, then um, I'm going to leave. So his host protested, he said, Rebbe, he said, your visit was one which was arranged for many months, uh, this uh, Chernobyl is came here completely unexpected. It's it's really unfair that you should leave in deference to him. So the said, "Let me tell you a, a little um, information." He said, "My father, Abdulov, once told me that shortly after he got married." He um, he wanted to to see what kind of souls he could bring into the world. So he said he made an alias neshama. He uh, his soul examined the whatever, wherever it is that that one looks for uh, prospective neshamas to be born. And he said he saw a cluster of eight neshamas. He said they were of a brilliance and a radiance that testified to a greatness that defied description. He says, my father said to me that he had great cheshik, that he had much interest in acquiring for himself those eight neshamas. He said, but they were in a place that would have put him, had he tried to to uh, bring them into this world, would have put him in great danger. So he said, when I analyzed it, I concluded that I should not put myself at risk, and I didn't go for those eight souls. He says, the Chernobyl Magid put himself... Shnabal Magid did take the risk. He says, in Sizen Gelungen, he was successful. So he said, since my father told me of these eight neshamas, he says, when one of those great souls is in the same community and I, he says, it is my responsibility to defer to them and not, not the other way around. Um, the Magid himself did not write any of his teres down, or there's in any event, there's very little that is actually in his own handwriting. Um, my 
great grandfather's father, Rebzisha, not Rebzisha Anapolo, but Rebzisha Talmacher. Rebzisha Talmacher was a was uh, was married to the the Magid's granddaughter, and 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 was a, a very um, was a very uh, devoted disciple of the Magid, and recorded. The Teres, the uh, the Divrei Teres that he heard from his grandfather, from the Magid, and uh, it was uh, he who published these Teres after the uh, the Magid's passing in the Sefer, which is called Likute Teres, uh, collections of, of Teres, and uh, the Sefer has uh, some very great um, <coughs> letters of approbation. Um, all of which uh, bear very, very eloquent testimony to the um, to the Chernobyl Magid, the, the author of these words. These teres, however, are very, very difficult, um, and even where uh, where one can gain some sense of of where they're transporting the reader. Uh, they're uh, they're not easily repeated. Uh, one of them is uh, more repeatable than others, and happens to be a work of, uh, in my estimation, of particular interest to us. So I'm going to um, I'm going to uh, to try to share it with you. The uh, the last years of his life during one of the the Magid's travels, he went through a very small village called Ignativka which is not far from Kiev. Huh? I don't know. Ignatovka, when, when they passed through Ignatovka, the, uh, the Magid um, turned to uh, whoever was with him at the time in the carriage and said, you know, this would be a good place to rest and um, the uh, whoever was with him uh, wasn't sure what the what the Rebbe meant so when he inquired further the Rebbe said to him um, he says there there is no um there's no church in Ignatovka, and he says it would be a very peaceful place to uh, for for me to sleep because the bells would not disturb my everlasting rest. That he said some uh, three or four years before his passing. Um, the year that he passed away, which, um, which was Tov Kuf Tzadik in 1838, he was visiting with his son, uh, our grandfather, in Cherkas. And uh, his condition worsened, and uh, the Cherkasa wanted, to, wanted for him to stay there. But some of the other children wanted to get him to Kiev, in the hope that they might get some some professor, some great specialist to address his condition. Uh, 
and um, they um, they took him to Kiev and as they passed through Ignativka the, the Magid passed away and was brought to rest in uh, Ignativka the, uh, the piece that, that I want to share with you is the Magid's explanation of something which, with which we're all familiar and something which all of us, I would wager, know, basically no um, explanation of. At the end of the Pesach Seder, we sing Chad Gadya. And Chad Gadya is um, a favorite, um, especially amongst the kids. And uh, lately, it's uh, it also comes not only with words but with with all kinds of sounds, sound effects. Uh, as whatever the case, it's not it's not a piece that we really have any sense of. What is it? Uh, what is its purpose? What is its message? And 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 are, what are we to do with it? So the Chernobyl Magid explained it as follows. He says the word Gadya, which we translate as being a, a goat, a kid. The word Gadya comes from the word Hagoda. Um, and in this case, he says. The word Haggadah refers to two Haggadahs, two statements, two narratives, which are at the very center of our of our spiritual lives. One is Anaychi Hashem I am the Lord your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt. The second is Alpona, you shall have no other gods before me. And all of the sacred writings indicate that all of the positive commandments, the mitzvot are really derivations of the first commandment, I am the Lord your God. Every time we do a positive commandment, we are really affirming the I am the Lord your God. Whereas every negative or every restrictive commandment, lo yelecha, um, that every restrictive commandment is really derives from thou shalt have no other gods before me and with, with each time that we honor the, the, the partic- particular restrictive covenant uh, and mitzvah at that point we fulfill the mitzvah thou shalt have no other gods before me <coughs> so he says that um when uh, Hashem told Moshe to prepare the way for the Aseris Adibros, for the Ten Commandments, he said, And here's what you shall speak to the children of Israel. So he says, these Chad Gadya, Chad Gadya, the fact that we repeat this phrase twice, each one refers to Anochi Hashem and the other Chad Gadya, the other utterance is that of shall have no other gods before me. And he says, and those two utterances were 
uttered in one breath by the Almighty, so that really, Chad Gadya, Chad Gadya are two statements which are one. They are two facets of the same diamond. The Zovin Abba, we translate this as Father Purchased. He translates it as the Zovin Abba, is making reference to the following Medrash. The Medrash says that conventionally, when a person sells an object or gives an object, the object is distinct of the seller or the giver. He says, the Medrash comments on the Pasuki, Medrash says that the, the Almighty said, I am giving you the Teira, but unlike anyone who sells something and the seller remains distinct, um, as the object passes to the purchaser, you are acquiring me simultaneously with the Teira. In other words, I go along with the Teira. I give you the Teira and I give myself along with the Teira to you. Now we understand that from yet another dimension. That the Almighty and the Teira are really a unity. The Zavin Abba, the, the Father that's being spoken about, is the Almighty. And um, and his unity with the Teira, so it really is talking about God and his Teira, and it's talking about the Zavin, it doesn't mean he purchased, but who sold himself. Father sold himself with these, these Chad Gadya, And it says, how does how did how did he sell himself? Zovinava betray Zuzi with two Zuzi. A Zuzi is a silver coin. So he says that silver silver in Hebrew is Kesef. And the word Kesef comes from the word kisufin, meaning longing and yearning. So he says if a person is to acquire God and his Teira, it will only be if he has a love of God and a love of Teira. If he has the yearning to acquire God and the yearning to acquire Teira. This is the concept, the Zavin Abba Bisrei that you can purchase Father, you can acquire, you can make a Kenyan in the Almighty and His Tera with these two Zuzim. However, it requires, he says, that we must hate evil. He quotes the Pasuk, Ehave Hashem Sinura. Those who love God must hate evil. So he says that that's the beginning of the next the next um, paragraph Asa Shunra 
He said the word Shunra, which we translate as a, what, a cat? Um, a weasel. He says the word Shunra is to be understood as representing two words, Seine Ra. Shunra is to be seen as Seine Ra, someone who hates evil. So, someone who a- hates evil comes and is Achla Legadio. That's the one who can really absorb, that's the one who who yearns for, who can becomes one with with Hashem and one with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Now, the, uh, so, so far, the uh, approach to the acquisition of godliness, the acquisition of Hashem's presence and His Terah, is through the love of Hashem, the love of Terah, something which, which must come hand in hand with we can't be hypocritical and we can't be inconsistent. It goes hand in hand with the fact that we have a very authentic repulsion for a revulsion against evil. Now, the Yetzer Hara is not going to take this sitting down. The fact that a person is going to embrace such treasures as Hashem and his Teira. So, the, the next figure on the scene is the Yetzirahara, who is likened to a caliph, a dog. Uh, he says that Kabbalistically the, the dog and the Nachash are linked. David HaMelech says in, uh, in Tehillim, he exclaims... Um, He says, Rescue from the sword my soul. From the kelev, from the dog, my pintala, the, the, uh, the neshama that I have is called yechidosi. So he's, the, the fear that, that David HaMelech has is that the kelev, who is linked to the nachash, and then of course again the, the nachash is, is something which we uh, associate with Neshicha with biting, and the the caliph is again in, in a uh, something that we associate with with biting. So he says, "Asa kalba." The Yetzirah comes, recognizing that here is someone who wants to make these these very powerful strides in his life, and this nashach l'shunra. He 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 bites the individual who is a seinera, the individual who hates evil. So he says the only antidote, or the primary antidote at this point, is emuna. He says the if a person wants to be able to begin to deal with the fact that all of a sudden he's beginning to be plagued by all of these desires to do things, to uh, participate in things which are, are against the, the, the divine will, the person needs to appeal to his faith, to... Um, to remember that uh, the Almighty is uh, an absolute, an all-embracing one. The whole world is full of His glory. Hashem sees everything. Hashem knows everything. And if a person can fill himself with a Muna, 
then he has a very strong presumption that he will be able to fend off the Kelev. So he says this is the meaning of Asachutra, the, uh, the stick came and um, hit the dog. The stick refers to uh, faith, which is the, the staff upon which uh, everything rests and a person's life and well-being rests. And just as uh, shaking a stick at the dog chases the dog away, this emuna is the staff which banishes the kelev, the yetzer hara, from our lives. He uses the pasuk bo chavakuk, that chavakuk came and, and put everything into into one mitzvah, which is the mitzvah of emuna. That's the um, that's the staff which is referred to in the Chadgadya. Now, he says that Imuna is a, a, a very powerful weapon. It's a very powerful staff against the, the Caliph. However, the kind of Imuna which is effective against the Yetzirah is one which is associated with Mesiras Nefesh. Demands total commitment, complete Involvement in in faith, uh, the kind of uh, the kind of faith which uh, which is constant in our lives. But if a person wavers and is and weakens in his faith, he says, then the the uh, the passion of the Yetzirah will make its invasion. And he says that's the meaning of Asa Nura Vesaraf Lechutra. That this fire comes and consumes the staff. That is, that Amuna will not stand up if uh, it, it's not of the uh, absolute variety. And this fire of desire and lust and appetite and passion comes along and consumes everything that the staff was able to fend off. So what does one do when the, uh, the fire of desire has uh, taken hold of him? So he says, the Chazal tell us, He says the, the antidote to that level of desire is the study of Teira. In Pagabach if you meet up with this coarse, this vulgar Yetzirah, what should you do? Drag him into the Beis Medrash, sit down and study Teira, and you will gain the upper hand. Now the Teira, we know, is symbolized by water. Our sages tell us that just as water abandons all high places and collects in the lower Places, so also does Teira abandon the arrogant and is only to be found collected amongst the humble. The Pasuk says, Let all those who are thirsty come and drink of this water, referring to Teira. So Teira is called, Limda Teira is called Maim, water. And that's the meaning of the Osa Maya, 
the Chava Lenura, that water, meaning Teira, comes and extinguishes this fire of passion. But he says, we have here another problem. And that is that there are people who study Teira for the wrong motives. That there are people who study with ulterior motives. There are people who study Teira because they want honor, they want covet, because they want to be able to... Uh, to um, push around uh, some of the lesser scholars because uh, they're, they're interested in what's called lekanta, they're interested in making trouble. The study of Torah is one of those things which our sages tell us can be either an elixir of life or can be a very virulent poison. And if it is not, if Torah is not studied for the right motives, what happens is not only does it not extinguish the Yetzir Hara, not only does it not extinguish the fire, but worse yet, it becomes a source of sustenance to the forces of evil. So he says, a person who, um, who doesn't have the right Das, person who doesn't have the right motivation, a person who doesn't approach Taylor with the, the, the appropriate um, interest and the appropriate goals, is, in his arrogance, is destined to conduct himself uh, in ways which can only be captured symbolically by the animal. So he says he becomes an animal. He does whatever he wants under the cloak of piety, under the cloak of Tera. And as such, that he says that's the meaning, this particular darkness of an individual who's, uh, who, who is a Torah scholar, but unfortunately who's, uh, who's rotted through, that's the meaning of Asa Tura Vishasamamaya that the ox comes and drinks the water. He says this refers to someone who drinks the water, a person who studies Teira, but who who in the process becomes an animal. And uh, and a source of uh, of vital energy to the forces of evil. He says when that happens, he says the only antidote is that someone needs to be able to penetrate, someone needs to be able to get through to this person, that he needs to abandon his arrogance. He has to become, he has to see himself as as our greats saw themselves, despite all of their achievements in Tehran, all of their mitzvahs, they were Lev Nishba, they were people whose hearts were within themselves were humbled and, 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 and broken. Our sages tell us, The Almighty says, You know whose company I keep? I keep those whose spirits are crushed. That's that's where you'll find me. A broken heart. The Almighty will not, will not abandon, will not forsake a, a broken heart. So he says, what's required over here is an act of zvicha, an act of shechting. You have to, you have to literally shecht this arrogance. This this yitzchak has to be slaughtered. 
and that's the meaning of Osash HaSheichet Sheikhit comes along Vishachat Lesura. The Sheikhit means someone who is a Zeveach Yitzchak. He's the person who's able to shecht, he's able to cut down this Yitzchak of arrogance so that he'll no longer conduct himself under the cloak of piety as an animal. The Mishnah in, in uh, Masech the Shabbos talks about the fact that on Shabbos, one of the Malachah Shabbos is Shechting. So the Gemara asks, um, what Av Malachah, what, what category of work is this that the, the Shechet is violating? So there are two opinions. One is Netilas Neshama, the taking of a soul. Another one is Tseveya, that in the act of Shechting, the blood colors and dyes the, the hide. So the Vashem once explained that this Sheikhet Alma, the Sheikhet of the world, refers to the Malachamovis, the angel of death. Our sages tell us that this angel of death is who has Satan, or Malachamovis, or Yetzahara, that really all of evil is, is, is this, are facets of the same entity. The angel of death is a facet of evil, the Yetzahara is a facet of evil, the prosecutor who prosecutes, prosecutes human beings before the divine throne, that's the Satan is a, another facet of evil, but they're all the, the same thing. And that that at the end of time, that evil will be banished. Evil will be eradicated. And the Svarim say, like, well, well, evil was just, the, the Satan was just doing his job. Why, why is Hashem going to punish him? Why is he going to eradicate him? So he says uh, that Hashem is not going to eradicate him for doing his job. He's going to eradicate him for that when he did his job, that he presented many averas, many wrongdoings as mitzvahs. That's considered dying something. That's a an, that's an isra of tzeveya. That's that's when you color something, you take something which is really a despicable act, and you turn it into a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to talk about certain people, to slander them, to malign them. Why? Because in your mind they're they're worthy of this kind of contempt. Big mitzvah to talk about them. There are all kinds of mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that that divide communities and create all kinds of, of pain in people. It's a big mitzvah to do those things. So he says that this Sheikh at the Alma, Amay Mechaev, this Boshem Tov explained, this Satan, why will he deserve his ultimate fate? So the Gemara says, Mishum because he, he came along and he presented, presented evil as though it were a mitzvah. That's what he's going to get clobbered for. So he says that the the over here, if uh, we're talking about the um, the act of being a zeveach, so he said, if the yetsahara perceives that that here is an individual who is preparing to uh, to humble himself. To, um, uh, to to put put himself into focus to the point where evil will have no place, there's one last-ditch effort. And that's where he begins to try to to do things where he's going to he's going to discolor, he's going to reframe this what what this person is doing as as a mitzvah. 
So, it's a very, very delicate step between humility and despair. Very delicate and a very thin line that separates a person who evaluates himself from a standpoint of, oh, maybe I have no right to arrogance, and in reality my service to the Almighty is flawed and wanting, and therefore I should I should not be arrogant, I shouldn't be full of myself and conceited, and I should... And someone who says, well, life is worthless, and I'm worthless, and I'm no good, and I'll never amount to anything, and goes into depression, and begins to despair of ever end, if the Yetzirah over here is successful, he will persuade that person that his depression and his despair is a mitzvah. You will say, oh, now you're really, now you're really, now you're really holy. Look how humble you are, and look how, how shattered you are. So he says, the problem with this, with this, uh, the state of affairs, is that it's, it's almost impossible to rescue somebody from that, because he thinks that he's where he should be. He believes that what he is doing is holy, that these feelings are a mitzvah. <coughs> so he says that this, uh, we were talking before about the the fact that the sheikhet is the uh, the individual who's going to shecht his yetzer hara with humility, and along comes the Malach HaMavis, and he shechts the Sheikhet. He shechts him by throwing him, casting him into despair, by casting him into Mereshchera, by throwing him into, a, into melancholy. So they hear the Malach HaMavis, who are Malach HaMavis, who are Yitzhara, who are Satan. He says he sees that if he allows this person to, in fact, to abandon his arrogance, that he's lost. So he becomes a Tzivea, and the Neitel Nisham at the same time he takes this man's soul away by um, by uh, throwing him into despair. He says at this point the only thing left for this person is that someone should come to him and say to him you feel despairing, you feel that you're worthless, you feel that you can't go anyplace and you have no energy left it's all over, and this person sees that the Yetzirah, the Malach HaMovis, has him in his grip. He says to this to the person, he says, "Call out to Hashem, call out to, to the Master of the world, and, and ask Him to redeem you from your despair. Ask Him to fill you with it, with the, the the will to live, to be able to to discern the difference between humility and." and um, self-contempt and self-deprecation and all of the negative feelings that come along with that. So he says, This is the concluding line where the HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the master of the world himself, comes to rescue this person from the Malach HaMovas who has him clutched in this illusion of mitzvah. And the... Um, Chernobyl Magid concludes, he says, this is what will happen at the end of time, the end of Jewish history, when uh, 
we will be looking at a generation who uh, will feel that uh, it's it's in the last throes that it can't help itself, it can't redeem itself, that it's it's uh, it's uh, worthless and uh, a generation that will be full of despair. He says, and in that time we will call out to Hashem, and the Almighty will come and will eradicate evil and will be shachat l'malachamavis. So that's the the reading or the interpretation of of the great Magid to the Chadgadya, and in uh, under this this remarkable light, the Chadgadya in fact becomes a a wonderful prescription for our our ongoing um, contest with with evil. Such is the um, the nature of. of um, the Magid, at least we have a, a tiny little glimpse into the into the life and into the tale of the Magid. Uh, his legacy to the world is one which uh, continues to be felt even these many, many years after his lifetime. Um, in our own time, there are good many Hasidic um, courts, so to speak, which, uh, which were influenced by Chernobyl. Um, there is both in Eretz Hall and in, in in Brooklyn. There is uh, there are uh, Chernobyl Rabbeim, um, the uh, the Belza dynasty uh, married into uh, Chernobyl, and Belz is uh, is one of those Hasidic that were very profoundly influenced by uh, by Chernobyl. Uh, there is. Um, both in Eretz and in America, there's Square, which has a number of outposts uh, in, in uh, Square Town and in, in, in Brooklyn. Um, and then there's Chikas uh, here in Milwaukee. So we Trisk and Tolna. Trisk and Tolna. There is Tolna has a um, a, a in Bayat Vigan. And who is, who's in Trisk? What? And it's Toma. I don't know Trisk. I mean, Trisk had a once uh, the uh, Karshas from uh, Denver. His his grandparents were Trisk Chassidim. Uh, before the war, there were a good many uh, Trisk outposts in Europe, in Poland. Uh, there was a Makava Rebbe in, in Chicago when um, actually before I came to Chicago he, he passed away there was a Makava Rebbe who has descendants I think they're now in, in, in New York um, there's a um, uh, there's, there's someone who's researching now all of the descendants of the um, Chernobyl Magid and I think that the number comes to um, inclusive of all the generations up until now comes to something like if I'm not mistaken like 29,000 descendants of the Chernobyl Magad.